welcome to Things That Will Help with Buffy Barfoot. This podcast explores what it's like to be human and how to find tools to feel clear, grounded, and happier. Each episode will have a different theme, and we'll talk about things that help to bring that theme to real life. The human stories ahead do not negate the heart or the dark, but rather point to the lighthouses along the way. This is Buffy. I woke up this morning and there was a video that was going around on social media that tons of my friends, especially my dancer friends, were posting. And it was a clip of former prima ballerina Marta Gonzalez, and she was sitting in a wheelchair. And Marta used to be a dancer with New York City Ballet. And in the video, she has Alzheimer's. And she looks really old and frail. And somebody started to play Tchaikovsky's Swan Lake for her. And what happened as I watched her in the video was just extraordinary. She seemed to go somewhere else entirely. And her long, she had extra long delicate fingers, very dancer hands, and her fingers started to move a little bit. And her reaction to the music was almost instantaneous. And she was, it was obvious that she was remembering the choreography, that it seemed to be stored in her body, and the music brought it to the surface. And her arms did the port-a-bras which is the arm movements that was tucked away so long ago. And it was like she was in her own dreamscape. And at one point in the video, the look in her eyes kind of changed and she looked like she'd been jolted awake by the remembrance. Like her eyes got really big and wide and sort of intense and her eyes were shining and almost urgent And her her gorgeous hands kept moving and remembering and marking the choreography from this other world. And you could see her breath. You could see her chiseled beauty, even in her, her old age. And you could see her impeccable timing as a dancer. It was all still there. It was remarkably still there stored in her cellular memory. And I thought about that video most of the day. And I watched it more than 12 times today. And each time I did, I saw something different and something that I loved, like a small little detail. And this speaks to the power of music, of course, and the power of the human spirit. And it has me kind of wondering today too if it speaks to the to the human resilience and our ability to always return to the core of who we are, no matter what happens to us, no matter what is happening to us. And I do know this. We, all of us, spend entirely too much time, I think, on our outer shell 
We spend time kind of fraught with conflict and with worry about how we look. We spend so much time worrying about what other people think of us. Instead of getting lost in art and in beauty and intending to the core of who we really are, instead of remembering ourselves. So here's a question I want to ask each of us. If you stripped away all the personal hurts and injustices and trauma that have covered you up and made you self-protect over the years, what would be underneath that? Seeing this video of Marta and how her essence came through, it sort of punched through the Alzheimer's. It sparked me to do a little research on cellular memory. And the examples that came up from my research, just like a quick kind of dig into it. I didn't do in-depth research, but um, the examples and stories that came up were really fascinating. And they were mostly stories about organ donors. And I was fascinated to learn some really wild stories about organ transplants and how the memories of organ donors, how they actually imprinted on the organs and carried forward into the recipients of these organs. And one case I read about was a woman named Claire Sylvia who received a heart and lung transplant from this 18-year-old boy who'd been in a motorcycle accident. And she got one of his lungs and his heart, and she started, not too long after the transplant, she started to have intense cravings (laughs) for burgers and beer. And later, she ended up talking to the boy's family and was able to confirm that some of her cravings were directly in line with the boys when he he was alive. And there, there are things that she never liked before that. And Claire Sylvia wrote a book about her experience, and it's called A Change of Heart. And I definitely am interested in reading that book once I read just a snippet of her story. Another cellular memory story that I read um, is about an eight-year-old child who received a heart from a 10-year-old child who died. And she began, the recipient of the heart, began to have vivid dreams about being murdered by a man. Um, And she was able to offer really detailed descriptions, like what he was wearing and um, exactly what he looked like and all of that. And later, after after seeing a psychiatrist, um, it was determined that this little girl's dreams were, were actually memories, cellular memories. And it eventually, um, amazingly enough, led to a conviction of the man who murdered the 10-year-old donor. It still seems to be a great mystery, cellular memory, uh, the memories that we hold inside of our skin and our cells and our body. Um, It's something we understand very little about at this point. And I'm so intrigued by what lives in us deeper than our day-to-day, deeper than societal prescriptions of us, deeper than the disease that can lay on top of us. And it's interesting to think 
what would come forward so strongly about you through cellular memory transfer if it were only your heart outside your body what story would it tell and what have you spent most of your time in your life here thinking about my granny my dad's mother I've talked about her a little bit in this podcast and other episodes. Her name was Ann Barfoot, and Granny was orphaned when she was pretty young. She was born into rural Mississippi poverty. Um, I'm not sure what age she was when her parents died, but she was pretty little. And, oh, I loved Granny so much. I thought she was fun and fancy and and I really looked up to her when I was really tiny. And I was little when the movie Annie came out. I think I was like in first grade. And I remember, it's one of my, my first memories, I remember she took me to see it at the movie theater. She was so excited to see this movie because it was a story about an orphan who had escaped a life of sadness and gloom. And it, and it had her same name. Annie had her name. And so little orphan Annie, who just like her, found, had found a better life. She'd climbed out of this, um, this really sad existence. And Granny bought me all these little Annie dolls, and she brought me the record. Um, and I remember singing along with the record over and over again, especially that song, Tomorrow. And I could tell that even then I could tell it was a magical connection for her. And I know now that it was a deep remembering of who she was and where she'd come from. And it was a story of her own resilience. Um, it, I think it was her spirit's recognition and validation somehow, this movie. And she just acted like a, a little kid at the theater, sort of brimming with joy. And it was one of my final memories of her because... I think she died that very same year or the year after. And I wonder what I will remember if I'm lucky enough to get old and what will shine through after the years have layered and layered on top of me. I know um, one of the reasons that I just sort of squished into a puddle after watching the Swan Lake video is that my identity as a dancer is something that is kind of um, covered up. It, it has some like piles of old blankets on top of it. My dancer identity, it seems like it's in the corner of the basement with lots of other things kind of piled on top of that. I have an ankle injury, some, some low self-esteem, some rejection letters from all sorts of higher-ups, and a smattering of things that my teachers have said to stop momentum. And the truth of the limitations of my body and my talent within the dancer's life. Um, And some of the things on that pile are warranted, and some are imagined. But when I get flashes of remembrance that my first love was dance. It transports me to another time. On my 30th birthday, my dad gave me a book called The Dance of Life by Havelock Ellis. 
And Dad always wrote inside a book when he gave it as a gift. Always he did this. And and he pulled a quote from the author. And in his scrawled handwriting, he wrote on the first blank page for me, Dancing and building are the two primary essential arts. The art of dancing stands at the source of all the arts that express themselves first in the human person. The art of building, or architecture, is the beginning of all the arts that lie outside the person. And in the end, they unite. Music, acting, poetry proceed in the one mighty stream. Sculpture, painting, all the arts of design in the other. There is no primary art outside these two arts, for their origin is far earlier than man himself, and dancing came first. And at the bottom of this quote from the book, he wrote to Buffy, the practitioner of the first of the arts. When my dad had a massive stroke, I was in Montana visiting Matt's sister Christy and her family, and nobody was out of bed yet. And I I tiptoed in bare feet to the bathroom to listen to my dad's wife Lisa's voicemail from a couple of hours before because her initial call had not woken me up. It was really early. And on the voicemail, Lisa's voice sounded very strained. And she said, Dad had been med-flighted to Huntsville during the night. Dad and Lisa lived in this small town in Alabama called Scottsboro. And after I heard her voicemail, I went upstairs to make a cup of coffee. There still was nobody up. And I remember I, I put on my boots I still had on my pajamas, but I felt like I could hear bad news better if I had on substantial footwear. And Lisa's voice was barely a whisper when she answered. And I curled my hand around my cup of coffee and felt myself exhale. It had been a small stroke. And then directly afterwards, a massive one. Dad was on life support after the second stroke, and there was an irreparable bleed on his brain as a result. And Lisa asked me when I could get there, and she seemed to be waiting for me to get there to decide what to do next. And when I got there, the doctor showed us the scan of his brain on a computer screen, and he determined out loud to us that he... um, didn't expect my dad to make a recovery. And I felt like that he was in this holding room that sole purpose was for us to catch up, catch up our hearts um, and our minds to speed, and that he, I felt like he was already gone. And I continued to pray that he couldn't feel and he couldn't fear And that he was cognitively someplace very green and alive with light. And so there were days 
at this point of, of sort of tents gathering around the hospital bed. And there was one spirited revival from my dad. He opened his eyes and he smiled and he swayed in response to some music from Lisa's playlist. And it was Adele, I remember. And it was thrilling. And for a few minutes, the whole room celebrated and laughed and danced with him. And he was really childlike and sweet. And I think that he knew me for a little time that night. I felt like we were in this snow globe, um, this tiny bit of joy and relief to boost the family in the room for just another stretch. And at a certain point in the evening, he sat up and he leaned over and put his, put his hand underneath his chin for support, kind of like a statue. And I laughed <laughs> and I said, Dad, you're doing Rodin's The Thinker, that, you know, famous sculpture. And he swiveled his head sideways and he looked straight at me and he grinned. And I, and in that moment, I, I so wanted to believe that he heard me and that he'd gotten the joke because he, he timed his smile to match mine and he dearly loved that statue. Dad's brain and his ability to think and turn over questions in his mind was so big to him, so important. He was definitely one of the smartest men that I've ever known. And I think under the layers of the stroke was, was the essence still of his beautiful brain. His mind, his love of learning, his words, his ability to listen to whoever sat in front of him, that was his imprint that was his superpower. And that was the part of him that was always there, even though I think the stroke had, had changed everything. So, of course, Marta made me think about my dad. If we could memorize our essence, what would it be? What about the person that you love the most? What part of them would float to the top no matter what was covering them up? And maybe, you know, maybe it's not always a talent or an art that is what is at our center. But maybe it's the thing that you felt the most alive doing. What is that thing that makes you the most alive? I was talking to my mom about these stories this morning and she leaned back in her chair and she smiled. And she reminded me of Debbie Dunlap, her dear friend, who died in her 30s years ago from a brain tumor. And Debbie had such a dry sense of humor, and she was always so funny, no matter how serious the situation. And Mom told me about Jan, her other dear friend, feeding Debbie towards the end. She had kind of lost her, um, mostly lost her ability to control her hands and aim them where she intended them to be. And she sent them both into peals of laughter, Mom said, when she pretended she was holding an ice cream cone up towards her mouth but smashed it into her forehead instead. <laughs> and the center of Debbie, her Debbie-ness, was always funny. 
and the heaviness of the brain tumor never entirely took that away from her. And I think it's what mom and it's what Jan chooses to remember about her. And I think what I am speaking about and discovering as I live into this topic is that it's the thing that we come we come by, we come to most honestly, the quality that we return to no matter the circumstance. My dancer imprint, which feels like a world away now, um, shares furniture with being a writer. And that's also where I feel the most alive, is among words and rearranging metaphors to suit my longings. That's how I memorize joy now. And I was so moved by Marta and her hands and her memory that I wanted to devote an entire episode to this because what it captured reminds me of us, even those of us who are young and athletic and sharp, because we have forgotten our joy and those things that make us sway and remember who we are in the, in the rubble. I always get so moved at these end-of-life stories when we see ancient people sparked by something so alive we can see their eyes shine. I think it's as close to palpable hope as it gets, looking into something that is inevitable for all of us. There is this story that we all have about when we'll die and what our imprint will be. We just don't know the ending yet. And so, again, I ask you, have you forgotten how to recognize what makes you come alive? Some of the ways that we can do this is to see in each other what that thing is. Learn what makes your people close their eyes and sway and remember a long-ago cellular joy. Is that something that you can help them tease out? If it's the sea that they love, can you take them to the ocean to feel the salt on their face if that's what will help them remember? I was reading a blog called The Simplicity Space by Courtney Carver, and, and one thing struck me in particular. She says, one way to remember who we are is to write yourself down. I love that. Write, to write yourself down. To write about the magic that moves through you before you cannot identify it anymore, before it's too late. To write down the science and the specifics of what makes you smile. It helps. It helps so much to remind you, but also to be an archive for those who love you. When I watch Coretta's experience trying to figure out her balance in her body and her fingers. Right now she's 10 months. I think about how we each started out as a baby and how we've always had an essence. And I wonder what will be the language that moves her the most? Will it be music or dance or words or the meticulous precision of science? Or will it be the crunch of nature? Or the buzz of the social rings that I always try to avoid? Or will it be food that teaches her how to love people? I want to read you a poem by Joy Harjo, who I just 
can't get enough of these days. It's called Remember. Remember the sky that you were born under. Know each of these stars' stories. Remember the moon. Know who she is. Remember the sun's birth at dawn that is the strongest point of time. Remember sundown and the giving away tonight. Remember your birth, how your mother struggled to give you form and breath. You are the evidence of her life and her mother's and hers. Remember your father. He is your life also. Remember the earth whose skin you are, red earth, black earth, yellow earth, white earth, brown earth, we are earth. Remember the plants, trees, animal life who all have their tribes, their families, their histories too. Talk to them. Listen to them. They are alive poems. Remember the wind. Remember her voice. She knows the origin of this universe. Remember you are all people and all people are you. Remember you are the universe and this universe is you. Remember all is in motion, is growing, is you. Remember language comes from this. Remember the dance language is, that life is. Remember. So let me close by saying thank you to Marta for memorizing something you love so dearly in your cells and heart patterns so this many years later you could change my day. I do know this. The everyday stuff that weighs our heart and our tired bodies down is never going to fully go away. But we can find pockets of reprieve when we remember what makes our eyes shine. If we forget what we look like and get lost in how we feel, those are the lucky times. Thank you so much for listening. I hope that you have a beautiful week. Check out the show notes for a link to the playlist this week. And if you'd like to become a patron on Patreon, it's super supportive and goes uh, directly to the production of this podcast. I so appreciate each of you. And I hope that you get to spend some of your time this week remembering who you are. Thank you.